the machinery just hums along no matter what. And it's, yeah. it's <laughs> so, very hard to, to, you're right. to that figure is, out. That is a really so, pessimistic uh, answer. I mean, I mean, you could, you could have added to it like, uh, you know, the mint and sell as many NFTs as possible and buy all the cocaine and then just enjoy the rest of your days or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the truth of the the way someone once said this to me, I think it's right. One person's pessimism is another person's realism. And I think we're losing and we've been losing for a long, long time. And I think any sort of strategic thinking needs to start from that base. Um, we've won the podcast, but lost the defense department and so i think we need to start seriously thinking about what would actually change things and i think a lot of the answers from the past are just not going to hold hello can you hear me yeah could you hear me i can well that was easy could you see me i can see both of you all right, weird. I can't really see me, and it looks like I'm in like a very dark space. But if it works, that's cool with me. It does. And uh, Derek, you look can you hear like me? you're in a somewhat apocalypse now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah with, the, with the blind light on and the light on coming in on one side of your face. Yeah, so. this has never happened to me. It's an interesting um, look. I'm gonna rejoin. Okay. Well, I was gonna say I, I didn't think it was a bad look. Now yeah, we don't need him. <laughs> you're like i know more anyway he's he's mostly just uh <laughs> he's an avatar yeah, he's, that we use he's uh i hesitate to say eye candy so i'll just leave it at that <laughs> um well while we were waiting for him to join uh derek do you want to give a quick uh introduction to your yourself and, and what you do uh sure i'm a writer and podcaster i have a newsletter on foreign affairs called foreign exchanges and Danny and I do a podcast, or yeah, podcast called uh, American Prestige. Um, you can find it wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, I think, I hope. Uh, I haven't, I haven't checked everywhere, but hopefully. And uh, it sorry, international I, 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 news, foreign affairs, U.S. foreign policy, that sort of thing. I was, I was going to say, sorry, I didn't mean to identify that you host the the Jacobin podcast. More that you uh, are both uh, both correspondents for Jacobin from time to time. Um, I mean, I've written for Jacobin, uh, yes, and Danny has uh, Danny writes for them. Uh, I think a bit more often than I do, but I, I have written for them in the past. Yes, awesome. Uh, is, is Danny is Danny there? Or I can't tell what just happened. Did he did he drop off again? Oh, yeah, it's like where? it looked like he joined and then he was closing the door. Ah, whatever. Um, do you want to give a quick uh, rundown of the the podcast too? What, what is the American Prestige podcast? What what can listeners find in there? Uh, so every week we uh, <laughs> nice. We'll see Yo, what, guys, okay. I don't know what the fuck is wrong with this thing, but like Skype sucks, and this is what it looks like it's going to be. <laughs> Alrighty then. I tried to fuck with the um, the settings. As Derek knows, this has never never happened to me. Um. So yeah, I just don't know what the problem is. You want me to? I could re-enter Skype. You want me to try that? No, no, you look great. I, I like the Windows background. Uh, it works. Yeah, it's cool. Whatever. All right, you, I look like a shadowy figure. <laughs> okay. All right. Cool. Uh, all right. Well, since you're here, do you want to tell everybody about the podcast? Do I? Are we live? Uh, we, we are. are. Yes. Oh, oh my God. Uh, okay, I didn't know that. Well, the podcast is American Prestige. We write about U.S. foreign policy. Um, and, uh, we write about, we talk, sorry, I was really taken aback. Uh, we are, uh, we talk about us foreign policy from a heterodox perspective and we kind of assume what if the United States didn't run the world or what if the assumptions about the U S running the world weren't, um, 
uh, didn't guide everything that we did. And, and that's sort of our bailiwick. And what we try to do is we try to do long form series on uh, particular events like the Vietnam War, or, um, the war in Afghanistan. Um, we hope to do one coming up on, on the non-aligned movement on the Palestinian resistance struggle and things like that. So that's basically what we do. You know, like a lot of U.S. media, uh, U.S. based media really just assumes that the United States has the right and duty to rule the world. And we fundamentally reject that position. Uh, I'll add this as well. When I reached out to uh, Ben Burgess, uh, I asked him, hey, are there two individuals or a handful of individuals you could recommend when it comes to uh, discussing foreign policy and uh, the U.S. that uh, I should uh, look up? And uh, you were the first two people that he named. So you came very highly recommended. Oh, yeah, I know Ben well. Very nice of him. Yeah, yeah. I hope I hope he said more than that, Ben. I hope you better have complimented this more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy. That's not, it's to, not good just enough to be mentioned. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I guess one of my first questions, because we're going to be talking about a topic that has a lot to unpack. Um, for uh, people who don't fully understand uh, what is taking place, could you give a quick background to the current uh, Ukraine slash Russia crisis and how we found ourselves in the position that we are in today? Um, sure. How far do you want me to go back? I can go back to uh, go to the, the end of the right? or I could go back to last year, which let's which go back to prefer? the ninth century. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could go back to the ninth century, really, frankly. Uh, but no, how, how far do you want me to go back? Uh, well, 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 yeah, why don't we start around the, like, start. like the fault, maybe the fall of the Berlin wall, maybe, or just something that contextualizes perhaps why I've heard before that the people on the left don't understand particularly even if they are and they claim to be anti-imperialist or whatever they don't quite understand the motivations behind someone like vladimir putin why he would have interest in that region specifically and why perhaps this is a uh, more of a problem than other uh you know conflicts that that may be taking place. well i mean the, the the links between ukraine and russia do go back to the ninth century or even earlier uh to kiev and rus really um so we could go back that far um but these are two people's uh, who have had a long history together. Uh, they went their separate ways when the Soviet Union uh, came to an end, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, as you say, and that, that period, uh, Ukraine and Russia became independent of the, the then-collapsed Soviet Union. Uh, they maintained close relations until uh, 2014 and what was called the Euromaidan movement. Uh, there was a protest against the uh, Russian-friendly government of Ukraine at the time, uh, weeks of uh, large demonstrations in Kiev, some possible involvement of uh, U.S. folks, let's say. <laughs> uh, I don't want to, you know, uh, cast aspersions without uh, hard evidence. But um, what wound up happening was they ousted the, the government that was in place at, at the time, the pro-Russian government. The Russians responded to this by um, sending forces into Crimea, they seized Crimea, they've annexed Crimea, which was the one part of Ukraine that uh, Russia really valued having access to. Uh, and they've been supporting uh, a separatist movement in the Donbass region, which is in the far east part of Ukraine, around the cities of Luhansk and uh, Donetsk. Uh, they've been supporting that ever since. So that's the background. Uh, you can fast forward then to uh, really last year, uh, there's been an ongoing kind of back and forth peace process that had pretty much broken down by last year. It seems to have picked up again now um, in terms of the, the Ukrainian civil war. Uh, the Russians uh, 
have started now as of uh, last year, basically started doing this thing where they organize military exercises in the region of Ukraine around the Ukrainian borders. Uh, they amass a large number of military forces in a sort of menacing way and then, you know, let everybody in, in the Ukraine and the West kind of sweat it out a little bit. Um, and they've done that again now. So they did that once last year and it, it really uh, came to naught. Uh, they've done it again, uh, and they're still uh, they've still got these forces positioned all around Ukraine, really conducting exercises. Uh, and the U.S., the West, NATO are convinced. It seems like uh, that this is all the precursor to a Russian invasion. Uh, I'm skeptical of that, but that's basically where things stand now. The, well, the tension call, is over a possible Kiev, invasion. Derek. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's I I agree with Derek. <laughs> All right. Um, so then uh, if you look at it from the, the perspective, like we have a little bit of background as to why that's happening. Do you think in the current climate, like when people we hear, obviously, we're kind of inundated with news from the West that this is a act of aggression and that the positioning of 100,000 troops near the border uh, is something that is intentionally being done uh, by Vladimir Putin as as a move, as a precursor, perhaps, to an invasion of uh, Ukraine. Is is that the whole story? Like, what, what exactly is the um, the background to the troop deployment in that area? Well, I mean, from the Russian perspective, the issue is Ukraine uh, potentially becoming a member of NATO. Uh, the Russians feel uh, not without cause that they have been um, betrayed to some extent, that there were promises made in the 1990s, again, after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, that NATO would sort of stick to its uh, end of the Cold War borders. Um, NATO has expanded uh, rapidly to the east over the last couple of decades. Um, and Ukraine now, since 2014, now it has a, a, a very pro-Western, not just government, but political orientation. I mean, the Russian intervention has sort of soured the, the uh, Ukrainian people on Russia to a large extent. Uh, there are concerns in Russia that NATO could uh, absorb Ukraine, that Ukraine could wind up as a NATO member. Uh, which could lead to all sorts of things like the positioning of U.S. troops or U.S. Uh, weaponry in Ukraine, which the Russians would see uh, as a security threat. There's a deeper nationalist uh, thing, which is why I said we could <laughs> go all the way back to the ninth century. Uh, there are deeper nationalist concerns about the relationship between Ukraine and Russia. And the idea of losing Ukraine to the West, I think, plays into Putin's thinking uh, to some degree, especially as he seems increasingly to be uh, close to the end of what well, I would say the end of his uh, political career. Um, you know, I think he's th he's thinking in terms of a legacy and that uh, that that kind of thing. Uh, enters his thinking but mainly it's it's over the the possibility of nato expanding into ukraine yeah and there's a, a deeper cold war history about khrushchev giving quote-unquote giving the crimea to ukraine and, and and whether that's legitimate in the eyes of a russian nationalist and things along those lines so it, it, it's important both uh symbolically and then also uh, in terms of a geo strategy to a, a russian sort of uh, foreign policy perspective I'm just curious why you think Putin's at the end of his political career. I know it's a side note, but. Well, I mean, he's older. He's old. um, <laughs> he's hasn't said that he's going to run for president again, even though he's sort of engineered um, a, a new constitution that would allow him to, even though he's technically was term limited. He's he's arranged it so that he could run again, but he hasn't said that he's going to. There were rumors going around last year. I don't know how much credence to give them, but uh, that he may be ailing from something. 
Uh, I, I think taken in uh, in the whole, I, my, my assumption, and I, you know, I realize I'm sort of trying to play armchair psychologist, but my assumption is he's starting to think about things in terms of, like, what am I leaving behind? What is my record? Did oh, sorry, Daniel, I thought you were going to say something there, but no, no. I mean, I think Derek's. I think Derek's right. Um, so. For people who like, do you ever get accused? I guess if you if you take a a stance on this before we get to anything involving, like, say, U.S. imperialism or anything like that, of being like pro uh, Putin, if you were to say condemn, his it's, actions it's not or... serious. Like, I just think I I just all those sorts of accusations wipe off my back because they, they ultimately. I mean, what does that mean that you're you're pro American empire? If 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 uh, sorry, you're anti American empire. If you're if you're questioning what the United States should do in the world. I mean, mm-hmm. those are such uh, ridiculous criticisms. And I think they all ultimately come from the fact that most people just accept the status quo of the geopolitical position that they find uh, that the United States finds itself in. And so anything sort of that that um, goes against the assumption that the United States should rule all areas of the world and now and forever and should have an interest in literally every area of the world, which is of relatively recent provenance, I dated to World War II and the immediate period afterward, uh, uh, is is a critique, um, is somehow anti-American. And I, I mean, there's a, I don't, we don't have to go into this, but there's a long and proud tradition that actually comes from the right that is very skeptical uh, of American intervention abroad. Um, so it's ironic when these things sort of get um, twisted in how people actually think about um, uh, the U.S. role in the world. I don't know, Derek, how how, you, how do you feel about that? I remember during Trump, like um, a writer called me like a Trumpist for, for saying that like, the United <laughs> States shouldn't do wars abroad. And I actually kind of like it because it's so ridiculous and so funny. And it's just going to look so bad in five years time that I don't really care. You know, it's kind of being a slightly public figure. You have to deal with the slings and arrows of uh, of the world. Um, yeah, I don't I mean, I don't get accused of this kind of stuff. I think it's because I'm not important enough for people to care. <laughs> Which is a nice place. I to think be, you're frankly. important, Derek. I, oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. But uh, no, I mean, I don't usually get uh, these kinds of things lobbed at me. Maybe it's just because I stay in my spider hole uh, on online. But uh, I, I agree with Danny. I mean, it's a it, it's a ridiculous thing to say. I mean, you know, to uh, say that I don't think the United States has an interest in. Ukraine. I don't think that the United States has a spirit. How dare you? Ukraine that sh- that can you match won't die for the Donbass, Derek. Russia you don't want to die for the Donbass. Like you know, I I don't think that makes me pro Putin. I think that would that would be a, an absurd thing to, well, to extrapolate think- from that. Just to just to build on that, I think people have been socialized to think that the United States and and particularly their their individual selves as Americans need to have like a take on every area of the world, which is really an artifact and function of imperialism. Like I I just don't think from from any perspective, ethical, uh, realistic, um, moral, what have you, that a, a citizen in the United States should should have a say in what happens all over the world. Uh, but that's what we're taught, and so when you uh, when you go against that, you're you're kind of attacking individual sense of their themselves, particularly people who have made their lives in the foreign policy establishment. So, like, I get it why they're emotionally hurt by my perfect geopolitical takes, but I just don't take <laughs> it that seriously. Okay, I well, mean, my yeah, my my sense is like the podcast that we're doing. If if there's anything that it leaves behind or anything that it achieves, if we can get people to stop 
immediately asking what should the United States do and instead make their first question, should the United States be doing anything at all in this situation? I think that would be a valuable thing. Uh, we just jump. Uh, the, the foreign policy establishment jumps immediately to what should we do? And, and I think that's uh, at best should be the second question that they're asking in, in any of these situations. Okay, well, why don't we address what you probably get from like the Western media uh, quite a bit is that uh, they characterize Putin as someone who is trying to uh, recreate, say, the USSR to a certain extent. Obviously, that's, <laughs> good that's luck. Com- yeah, com- completely unrealistic and not possible. But is there any truth to that? Is 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 the purpose for him uh, focusing so much on Ukraine specifically just because of what he fears as the expansion of NATO and uh, putting something directly near his border? So. So what I would say, Derek, I'm curious to hear what you think, is that Russia is effectively a middle power that has a long history of being a great power. And so this is the bind that someone like Putin finds himself in, that he he has to, um, for uh, nationalistic reasons and also, you know, to keep himself in power, he, he, he is like a quote unquote authoritarian, but he kind of serves at the head of a kind of a group of oligarchs, right? And so he could, in theory, be replaced. Um, he has to basically... Um, make Russia seem powerful, particularly in its region of Eastern Europe or or Western Russia, however you want to view it. Um, And so I think that's an overriding geopolitical goal. He doesn't want Russia to further decline in power and authority uh, that that it's experienced over the last 30 years. And that's an overarching goal I think he's had for his entire political career. Um, Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think Russia is a is a unique case of a country that has a superpower military with a middling economy um, and not that much influence, but they've got this huge military with a lot of nukes uh, that, you know, they they feel should uh, still provide them with the status of uh, a great power. I don't I don't think the intention is to rebuild the Soviet Union. That would be absurd. Uh, to even, you know, contemplate. Um, but I do think, you know, you can look at Ukraine, you can look at Georgia, you can look at the relationships and the alliances that uh, the Russians have tried to cultivate in Central Asia. Um, there is a, a sense that they're very sensitive about asserting a sphere of influence. Um, and I think partly, uh, you know, having uh, in a way that has nothing to do with the United States, I think Part of this is about um, their relationship with China. You know, if you look at the Russian China, the relationship between Russia and China, they're very uh, friendly with one another. They're allied. But in objective terms, China is far the far superior power at this point. And I don't think that necessarily sits terribly well with the Russians. Um, and so they, they like to, to sort of stake out these places that um, are their sphere of influence in the same way that the United States does with, say, the entire Western Hemisphere, uh, you know, to say the, this is our our region and, and, you know, hands off. And I think we can't just forget the history. Russia has been invaded a lot of times from the West. Uh, Napoleon, um, during World War One, there were incursions. And of course, Hitler, the famous Operation Barbarossa. So, so there's a, a historical memory within Russia about land invasions from the West that I think still operates uh, pretty significantly in Russian geostrategic thinking. And, and particularly, you know, if you look at what geostrategists say, uh, one of the major benefits the U.S. has is these two, like, quote unquote, grand moats, you know, the Atlantic and the Pacific. Russia doesn't have that. So it's just from a pure geopolitical realist perspective, um, Russians are 
are operating in a different strategic environment. And, and you know, one of the, the the major ways to be a good geostrategist is to have strategic empathy for what other people might be thinking. This is not to say anything about, you know, morally whether Putin's a good guy or Russia's a good state or what have you, but just to acknowledge the pure material basis upon which Russian foreign policy, I think, does legitimately rest. Yeah, I'd, I mean, I'd, I wouldn't expect either of you to to be either like uh, fans of Putin or anything that he's done, right? Like, I'm sure the, the, that one goes without saying. This is like not not exactly a uh, a pro Putin conversation. I, I think maybe then like the the idea is oftentimes uh, it'll get framed like this: what what about slowing? Russian imperialism, for example, that's one of the one of the ways I've heard this framed and that Russia is looking to expand and, and would they end at Ukraine? So this is you? this is the big I think that, that I want everyone to remember this answer because this is the right answer. <laughs> if you're truly against the American empire, the American empire cannot have the capabilities to do things like slow Russian imperialism. So at some point you have to make the choice. Do you want the American empire or do you not want the American empire? And if you don't want a, uh, the American empire, then you need to restrict its capabilities. And that will naturally involve things happening overseas without American involvement. So it's just up to every individual to decide to ask themselves at night when they close their eyes, what do they actually want in the world? Do they want a form of liberal imperialism, which says the United States should do things like slow what other people are doing overseas, or do they genuinely want an end to the American empire? Uh, and that will involve getting rid of their capabilities. And that's really the question that people have to ask themselves. And I, I can't direct them on that. It's almost an ontological question about how they view the world. No, sorry. Every, every time when yeah. I finish speaking, I'm, I'm always like, I'm going to see if uh, Derek wants to add something to this. No. Derek, <laughs> do you no, disagree? I, do you agree? Uh, no, I, I, I'll, stay. I'll go with your answer there. That was That was good. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's what a lot of these questions. And I think what happens is we often get distracted when we're talking about this particular foreign policy case X or Y, or this humanitarian intervention or that humanitarian intervention, like, it depends, do you think the US could rule the world? I think no, based on history. If you think yes, then you're going to have a different answer than that. But if you think no, then you have to consider what will that actually look like? And it'll involve getting rid of the capabilities that allow the United States to, you know, have a say about what happens in Eastern Europe or in East Asia or whatever. And you might say, you know what, I want the United States, you know, that's a liberal empire. I, I prefer it to whatever. That's fine. Um, I would just also add, I don't think the metaphors we use for geopolitics, like about power vacuums, aren't actually accurate. It's not like this is a space system where things naturally like move into. I don't think if the United States, you know, uh, kind of retreats from the world or restrains itself, however you want to put it, it's not going to be necessarily someone to replace it. That's just not how history works. And so we also have to rethink the metaphors we use to understand U.S. foreign policy and the U.S. role in the world. Yeah, it's usually positioned in a sense that if uh, the United States wasn't the arbor, wasn't like the you know the hegemonic superpower that it is, that we would have other people or sorry, other nations replace it, uh, namely China uh, or someone else that was coming up to task. Um, but then I, I guess we'd refute that directly, right? Well, I would say a couple of things. Um, I would say China has not really demonstrated any interest to uh, govern outside of its own hemisphere, uh, much like the United States has dominated the Western Hemisphere. Uh, I think not for not that's not a good thing. I not, I'm not supporting it, but that's basically what I view China as doing. Except probably maybe a little more limited because China has more serious um, threatening powers in the region, but it, it wants a, a regional hegemony. Um, and I actually think what often happens is that the United States, and particularly U.S. strategists and policymakers, wind up reading their own thought 
onto other people. Uh, I think someone like George Kennan did this. And I think there's a universalizing quality to American foreign policy that emerges from the very particular form of American Protestantism that dominates here that isn't quite present in other cultures. During the Cold War, people claimed that Marxism-Leninism was a similarly uh, global ideology. And to some, to some extent, theoretically, that's right. But if you actually look at like what, what Russia did over the course of the first half of the 20th century after the Bolshevik Revolution, I think it was pretty clear they were seeking regional, not global hegemony, even if they did um, support movements of national liberation, as it was called at the time in various moments. But I don't think other powers have this universalistic American fantasy of dominating the world. I think that's a peculiarly American thing. Uh, yeah, probably, uh, you know, we inherited it from the Brits. Yeah. And they, I mean, I think there's this whole form of like Anglo-American culture and, and religion that we could get into. But I, I think we have to actually take seriously other cultures and what they have actually done in their history. Um, we're hearing out of a lot of Ukrainian officials right now, including, I believe, the president himself saying that they don't believe an invasion from Russia is imminent. Uh, and yet we're hearing usually the opposite story coming from NATO allies, whether it's Boris Johnson or, uh, you know, uh, Joe Biden himself. How uh, how much like wh where do you both find the, the truth lies in that? And, and why do you think you're hearing opposing stories coming both out of Ukraine and then out of uh, NATO countries? Well, I mean, look, everybody has their reasons for for pushing a, this particular story in one direction or another. Uh, the Ukrainian government, Volodymyr Zelensky, um, the president, uh, is is angry, and I think he's got some justification for being angry that that this drumbeat of war talk and panic from the U.S. and the U.K. Um, is really starting to impact Ukraine on an economic level. Um, you know, the 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 images of the U.S. and the U.K. and Canada now is sort of ordering family members of their diplomats out of the country and issuing travel warnings. It's all really having a drag effect um, on the Ukrainian economy for what may be, in fact, nothing, you know, making a, a mountain out of a molehill. So, I mean, I think he's got uh, a lot of reasons to go very hard at kind of downplaying the threat here because he would like to not spend the next year in uh, economic limbo while we all kind of decide what Vladimir Putin is thinking on any given day. Um, at the same time, you've got leaders in the West who all have their own reasons for wanting to hype this up. Uh, Boris Johnson is, you know, close to facing a leadership challenge in his own party because apparently uh, 10 Downing Street had a party every day <laughs> under lockdown. Uh, you know, some ridiculous, uh, ridiculous stuff going on there. Uh, so he's got reason to want to distract, kind of, you know, put put this story on the front page of the paper and, and get him himself off of it. Uh, you've got Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, who styles himself now as not only the leader of Europe, but sort of uh, seems to be styling himself as the EU's Putin whisperer. You know, he's the one doing the phone calls and, uh, you know, taking the the one on one diplomacy. Um, so he's got a reason to to want to, you know, make this a big deal. Biden, I think, you know, the Biden administration has a couple of different reasons. One, I think, is uh, they're trying to sell liquefied nat natural gas to Europe as an alternative uh, to Russian gas supplies. So I think there, there are some other uh, variety of reasons for the United States to be hyping this story up. Where do I think the truth lies? Probably um, somewhere closer to Zelensky. I, I would I would fall somewhere closer to the, the the Ukrainian position here. But more to the point, I think. 
Uh, and this is true all over the world, not just in Ukraine. I think, uh, you know, in terms of our, our dealings on the Korean Peninsula, in terms of our dealings in the Middle East, um, the United States would be well served to step back and let local allies run these situations, manage these situations and follow their lead. We would be well advised to let the South Koreans uh, take the lead in terms of our, our uh, dealings with North Korea. And I think this is another case of that we would be well advised to, to sort of heed what the Ukrainians are saying, since they're the ones uh, who are there and they're the ones who are being most affected by this. I don't know, Danny, you may have a, a, a different take. No, I think that's exactly right. Um, what about? I don't think there's oh, going to be a war, personally, Derek. I guess I'll go out on a limb. I don't think there's going to be anything. No, I don't either. I mean, yeah. I think the the example of the previous uh, buildup is should be instructive here. I mean, he's done this once. They've done this once before. I think uh, you know, if you're going to give the benefit of the doubt, I would give it to the, the the idea that they're just you know screwing around. They're basically you know doing this to keep everybody on off balance to just destabilize Ukraine because that's, you know, in, in their interests uh, and they can do it. Yeah. I'm just really worried about Russian influence on the next election. You know, that's keeping me <laughs> up at night. <laughs> the, the midterms? Or the next yeah, just, yes. I mean, it's just, they're pulling the Everything. strings. Yeah. They're, they're pulling the strings. That's what, that's what keeps me up. Um, Okay, so this, I mean, this next question is going to seem like I'm just trying to uh, rapid fire as many, uh, like, you know, Western media liberal takes at you as I can, but that's because I know pretty much ideologically where you will stand. So I'm trying to see what the what the leftist take is in opposition to these. What what would you say to recent polling coming out showing that 54% of Ukrainians are in favor of, say, joining NATO and support having uh, Western assistance uh, if, to someone who's saying that we should be listening to the Ukrainians specifically? I would say if we had an international workers movement that was democratically controlled, we could take public opinion polls like that seriously. But in the absence of that, we have to live in reality. And what uh, the United States' interests are might not uh, necessarily be directly related to what that poll says. Also, polling is very, 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 very difficult to take seriously in a lot of ways. I don't know. Derek, what do you think? Um, I mean, my my real answer to that would be that I think NATO shouldn't be shouldn't exist anymore. They should have, yeah, they should have signed the divorce papers the day after the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, but, you know, I think I mean, I've said this on our show. Organizationally, NATO does exist. Uh, I'm you know, I'm talking about a fantasy world. NATO does exist. Uh, it has to, for organizational reasons, maintain the idea that any nation that wants to join can join um, because otherwise it, it loses part of its reason for being. Um, but do I think that NATO should should, uh, you know, kick the, the membership process into high gear for Ukraine? No. And neither does NATO, frankly. I mean, the 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 idea of admitting a country that has two uh, territorial disputes already in its own borders, uh, and that has you know major problems in terms of corruption, in terms of uh, you know political, in terms of uh, sort of stable governance. Uh, it, it's not it's not going to happen. I mean, you know, they can, they won't say that. NATO leaders won't say that. Um, but but they would uh, uh, you know if they wanted to push Ukrainian membership, they would be doing it right now, and they're not doing that. And from the left, the perspective, again, is if you are truly against the American empire, 
like that you need to get rid of the capabilities where you could answer that question in a way that somehow involves American intervention. Um, it, it just it, it really depends on how you read the last 70 years of liberal liberal empire, I think. I, I, I mean, I just read it as failure to failure, making the world worse. Um, and so that's what really has to be your overarching perspective when you're talking about particular issues. Otherwise, you just get caught in miasma after miasma. And some of them might be worthy, some of them might not be worthy, but they're ultimately disconnected to, from the question of the imperial structure, which Derek and I don't believe should exist. <laughs> <laughs> One of the uh, the things that I'd heard when I was listening to like a monk debate on this, because I was trying to get what the, uh, the I guess... The, Yasha? Yeah. Yasha well, I was, monk? Well, yeah. Well, plus, oh, I was God. just trying to learn what the Western, you know, if if you had both, say, like a conservative and a liberal arguing about Ukraine, where did they both land on this? And one thing that they repeatedly brought up is that uh, if history has taught us anything, it's that uh, we should learn from the lesson of someone like Putin. And uh, many people stated that he wasn't going to actually annex Crimea, and then he did. So is that not a lesson towards this current situation in which people are stating, like you both are stating now, he's not actually going to uh, invade Ukraine, but, uh, you know, should should history teach us differently? I think we should deploy 400,000 troops to the Ukrainian border <laughs> and institute a draft. I mean, this is what that's what that's arguing. Okay. I mean, it, it, that would Yasha is okay, Yasha. Yeah. Like that that's that's your just say what you mean. Reinstitute the draft and we'll just have a, a Maginot wall on uh, in the border of Ukraine and Russia. Somebody somebody google his uh, local enlistment station yeah um, <laughs> like ben rhodes remember ben yeah. rhodes who claimed on 9 11 he went to like enlist and he's like no i would be better served working in a <laughs> yeah. think tank the american people need me to yeah. do, uh, yeah. to the do american it. people need us to podcast i mean derek yeah. and i take very that's seriously right. we would never enlist but that's because we're podcasters I, I mean i don't i don't know how you point to crimea and ignore uh the example of georgia which i think is more salient to uh mainland ukraine i mean the russians have supported uh separatist movements in south ossetia and abkhazia uh they've been supporting them for you know what 14 15 years now well longer than that but uh it really became an issue at the end of the, the bush administration um but they haven't annexed those places they've simply been maintaining support for these separatist groups again which kind of you know territorially destabilizes georgia keeps it uh, again, another possible candidate for NATO membership, I guess, but it keeps them uh, unsuitable for for that sort of thing. Um, I mean, I, I Crimea was a very special case. Danny talked about the history of it. Crimea has uh, always been uh, kind of a, a part of Russian nationalism in a way that the the rest of these places are not necessarily. Um, it's also strategically very valuable to the Russian Crucial. military yeah. and uh, commercially. Um, so there are special aspects of Crimea that, that, uh, uh, I, I think made that annexation palatable or desirable for the Russians, but, you know, are they going to, uh, go to war and, or, or not go to war necessarily maybe, but, you know, they're going to deal with, uh, the sanctions that would follow and the punishments that would follow for like annexing the Donbass region. I, I doubt it. I think they're going to try to maintain that as, uh, a part of Ukraine, but separate from it and constant, you know, a sort of constant source of uh, instability or, or way for the, the Russians to maintain kind of a, uh, a, a hold on Ukrainian politics. Um, do, could you explain why NATO didn't or hasn't disbanded? What, what, what is the purpose both to uh, America? Money. And, yeah. <laughs> Those two reasons, yeah. money and dominance. 
The United States wants to remain the world's economic and military hegemon. Europe wants to outsource its defense and not actually pay for it. And so NATO continues. There's, I don't think it's any more dramatic than that. It's not more complicated than that. It's, it's wild that it continues to exist. It was very specifically a wartime alliance wartime, quote unquote, but that that was the whole goal. What's the famous quote about NATO to, to keep the Germans down, the Russians out and the Americans in, right? And none of those things really make sense anymore. All right. three, except keeping the Americans in for European defense. I think Europe is quite rich. They've they've benefited from a colonialism quite well. Uh, and they, they're, they're rich enough to pay for their own defense. And it's wild that Americans are paying for it. Um, in terms of when people try to frame this as, uh, you know, you're just a pair of lefties who don't actually understand how the world works. And like, are you both just sitting there from the comfort of your podcasting booth uh, thinking that like we should just allow uh, Russia to perhaps invade Ukraine? Uh, is, is Should the U.S. stand back or just stand by as, as, as something like that is to occur? Is that honestly what you're advocating? Um, do, do, you, do, you, do you find that pushback uh, occurs at all? And if so, what, what would your response be? Again, the question of empire, right? Do you want the empire or not? That is the question. And I'm uh, like, we live in an imperfect world. We live in a tragic world. I do think realists are like generally correct about that. Um, and so then you just have to ask yourself, yeah, you can maintain the empire forever. And I think that's done more harm than good to the world in a variety of ways. It helped cook the planet by making American consumption the <laughs> the de, de rigueur position of every middle class society um, and in a variety of other ways. Um, and if you want that to continue, uh, I disagree with that. Uh, I, I mean, that criticism invariably comes from somebody who was part of the 101st keyboard commandos uh, in the run up to the Iraq war, uh, who sat on their ass and typed about how we should send American soldiers over to die and to kill half a million or more uh, Iraqis for no reason. Uh, and I would rather be what I would rather do what I'm doing than than do that. Yes. Yeah, and also 37 million refugees, I believe the, the the statistic was from the Brown University Cost of War Project. Like the, the, the damage that liberal imperialism has done to the world is staggering. Uh, and it's uh, pretty wild that uh, we ask these same questions every three to four years as if we don't have a clear empirical record of what this has actually led to. When it comes to that, I've seen a lot of comparisons going on, especially online right now, where people are saying like the same people who say that they're against the, the U.S. invasion of Iraq back in the day would have been supporting it wholeheartedly based on the same rhetoric that they're applying to Ukraine and Russia. Uh, do you think that comparison is fair, where people have basically tried to do a boogeyman in Saddam Hussein and doing the same thing with Vladimir Putin? I mean, I think the the... Uh, 2016 election broke a lot of people's brains uh, about, <laughs> about Russia. Um, but I mean, you know, Russia's always sort of held this special boogeyman place and uh, not always, I guess, but, you know, Cold War and on has had this special boogeyman kind of status for for a certain type of, um, you know, American policymaker or columnist or whatever you want to, you know, fill in the blank with whatever. Um, and and then you add on to that. I, I really do think the the 2016 like sent a lot of people into uh, a strange headspace uh, about Putin and about Russia. 
And I think if you look back on the history, uh, over the course of the 1930s and 1940s, American elites who had previously remained aloof from dominating the world, even though elites were just fine with dominating the Western Hemisphere, but there was no global vision. Um, I think what has happened is that after American elites made that choice, uh, you need to have a, an existential enemy in, in order to justify that choice. And, and first it was the Nazis during World War II and in 40, 41, 42, 43. Um, and then it was the Soviets afterward. Uh, then uh, after uh, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War, you get the mission of the United States being to end genocide. Uh, and then 9-11 happened. And now the enemy du jour is, quote unquote, Islamic radicalism. And now you're seeing a return to China and a little bit of Russia as well. So these existential enemies actually just justify the incredibly undemocratic democratic state that has um, accreted over the course of the last 75 years, uh, as well as the ridiculous expenditure on the military that continues to define U.S. foreign policy. So I really think we need to ask ourselves more critical uh, questions about what these sorts of existential enemies do. And uh, just personally, from my perspective, I do think the Nazis, you know, as a Jew, I think that was a good thing that the Nazis were taken out. And I think they had vicious designs on the world. Um, I think the Soviet Union threat was um, exaggerated. Um, I think the threat of, quote unquote, Islamic radicalism was also exaggerated. And I think right now, the threat of both, both Russia and China is over-exaggerated. And it's mainly over-exaggerated to, to filter money and to allow people who do evil things in the world to sleep at night. Do you think then that perhaps the worst that this could get is just that there is going to be a lot of posturing and perhaps you know an increase in arms sales uh, to, to help what they consider allies? So in, in this sense, you might see, like I just saw today, there's a, a deployment to like 8,500 new troops, U.S. troops to, to regions in Germany and stuff like that. Is, is that going to be what we're in for the, the short term, uh, for example? I'll let Derek answer that, but someone in the chat said that I'm channeling Michael Brooks. <laughs> Michael Brooks is a very was a very good friend of mine, uh, and I'd like to think our oh, fashion cool. choices inspired each other. All right, sorry, Derek, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually wearing a Michael right, Brooks then. shirt right now, so that's that's fitting. Uh, so, um, I mean, I don't, I, I don't entirely rule out the possibility of uh, a conflict here, uh, especially if. Um, you know, there's there's uh, continued sort of just intransigent uh, kind of brick wall. You know, every time the the Russians raise a concern or talk about, you know, uh, kind of every time uh, you know they send a letter, whatever they've been doing. I mean, they they've been sort of uh, kind of trying to explain their position. And I'm not taking their side but i think they've been met with a steady stream of no's and that has a tendency to push people into corners um so i, I mean I, I think there is a possibility i don't think it's a, a big possibility i don't think it's uh you know a, a a strong likelihood or anything like that uh that this could end up in some kind of a conflict but more likely i think um you'll see the russians maybe uh, sending a little more support to the the rebels. You'll see the U.S. funneling more aid to the Ukrainians, positioning troops in uh, Germany and Poland, and uh, maybe sending some assets to the the Baltic states. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't, uh, I don't think this will end in a conflict. Um, it, it, the Russians have what they need right now to keep Ukraine kind of off kilter, keep it out of NATO. Uh, I don't think they need to risk anything uh, more than what they're they're doing now, which is probably uh, what they'll do. Um, in terms of, I know this is a little term, uh, U.S. imperialism. 
I get people sometimes who will be confused by people who use it in the modern day era because they're like, well, you know, in the modern age, you know, the U.S. isn't actually uh, yeah, looking that's to... just wrong. Uh, this is like <laughs> standard amongst historians. There are different forms of empire. If people are really interested in this, they should check out Daniel Immervar's book, I-M-M-E-R-W-A-H-R, called How to Hide an Empire. The U.S. one has literal colonies. There are five colonies that the U.S. controls, Puerto Rico, Guam, American Samoa, the Virgin Islands, and the Northern Mariana Islands. So there are literal colonies where people do not have representation that the U.S. controls. And also there's what's called the Empire of Bases, where the United States has about 750 overseas bases that essentially dominate the world by any by any any definition, it's an empire. Um, there are different forms of empire, but it's an empire, and everyone in the historical profession accepts that it is an empire. The people who don't do so for ideological reasons. That was a very good answer. I, I, I wanted you to add one one last caveat to it, though, at the very end. I, 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 could you explain a little bit about how it manages perhaps resource extraction, especially in, in certain countries? Because I think that's probably the, the easiest way to explain or emphasize what you were just speaking about. Well, well, number one, um, dollar hegemony, the fact that the dollar is a global reserve currency allows the United States to essentially control the global economy and the military bases essentially allow it to project power. But it also has various arrangements with uh, governments and multinational corporations that essentially keep um, extracting resources, flow, extractive resources flowing to the United States. This is actually a really big problem. Derek, correct me if I'm wrong, but the U.S. is what, like 4% or 3.5% of the global population, but consumes 20% of the raw materials, something like that. Uh, it's, it's somewhere like in that, that yeah. range. Yeah. And so, like, um, we've essentially created a global structure that just keeps on feeding and feeding and feeding the American beast through economic and military domination. And so, I mean, you know, people feel helpless with so many different issues, right? Whether it's global global warming or whatever it is. Uh, This has to be one where it's a very difficult thing to say. If you are actually anti-imperialist, if you are trying to end that current situation that you talked about, what where does one even start and and i'm probably going to merge that into a discussion about the military industrial complex too because they it also seems like a very uh, a difficult even from like i think it's a non-starter from a political issue right like even people who are supposed to be the representatives of say progressives or the left like bernie sanders um they usually don't bring up or talk often about the military industrial complex and how it's interwoven with the u.s's geopolitics so I'm going to give an incredibly pessimistic answer, um, which is that there is no uh, there there is no way at this moment. Um, I think one of the the most important things that we need to do, if you're an anti-imperialist, or I would say on the American left more broadly, is to really think through political strategy. Um, I think we're using. I wrote an, actually an article for Derek Substack, which everyone su- should subscribe to, called Foreign Exchanges, called the End of Mass Politics. And I think a lot of the ways we think about politics are just no longer germane to the actual political situation of the 21st century, where power has been so diffused throughout a, ver- a public slash private American state um, and uh, a permanent bureaucracy that essentially makes all fundamental decisions about foreign and macroeconomic policy that is not clear where to start. I mean, the old answer is mass protests. I'm very skeptical of that working given the power re- of relationships of the early 21st century that actually dominate. So I think there, this is really an open question is what form of political strategy is actually going to be useful for transforming the United States' role in the world and ending the American empire? I don't Derek, what do you think about that? Um, I, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I, I don't think as much about these kinds of questions as you do because it's not like I'm, I have all I can handle just like writing about <laughs> what's happening. Literally, you know, forget it, forget what should we do about it. Um, but I, I mean, I will, I will confess to being um, disappointed uh, over the last. Three, maybe well, maybe four presidencies really now uh, at at how 
these you know changes in party control of the White House and the defense and security apparatus and these supposed uh, ideological shifts really haven't made any difference in how you, the United States conducts uh, its foreign policy. They've made differences on a surface level, like Donald Trump didn't talk about human rights, uh, or he, uh, you know, he was chummy with some people that we'd rather, um, you know, pretend to keep at arm's length, even as we're sort of cultivating relationships with them, like the Saudis or like, uh, uh, you know, Abdel Fattah Sisi, the guy, the president of Egypt. Um, you know, I, I, but it, those are surface differences. I, I don't see the kinds of shifts in actual conduct uh, between Obama, Trump, and Biden, let's say. I mean, you could leave W out of it, I guess, because uh, of Iraq. He's a friend but, of the pod. Uh, he's friend, definitely a <laughs> friend of the pod. Um, but but it's, it's very discouraging for somebody who is, uh, you know, without uh, totally dating myself, a little older than Danny, uh, <laughs> and kind of, you know, grew up as a, uh, somebody who thought, you know, politics works. You vote, you get the guy, you know, get the president you want. I'm a good, uh, good Democrat. You know, I'm going to vote for these Democratic guys. It, it's discouraging to really see this in action and and how little difference it seems to make. Um, you know, who who you who you pick, and and that's uh, that's brought me closer to to I think the position that Danny articulated, which is really uh, the machinery just hums along no matter what. And it's, yeah, it's <laughs> so, very hard to, to, you're right. to that figure is, out. That is a really so, pessimistic wow. answer. How I mean, I mean, that. you could you could have added to it like uh, you know, the mint and sell as many NFTs as possible and buy all the cocaine and then just enjoy the rest of your days or something. <laughs> I mean, the truth of the the way someone once said this to me, and I think it's right. One person's pessimism is another person's realism, and I think we're losing, and we've been losing for a long, long time. And I think any sort of strategic thinking needs to start from that base. Um, we've won the podcast, but lost. The Defense Department. And so I think we need to start seriously thinking about what would actually change things. And I think a lot of the answers from the past are just not going to hold. Do you think there's no possibility of, say, uh, genuinely a movement towards, say, nationalizing uh, arms manufacturers so that there's no way? Move? Yeah, <laughs> no too, way. Too powerful you? to... If you're a policymaker, you, you, you do use some policy for a few years and then you become a head of the Raytheon board. Why would you ever want to do anything? And people don't even know about it. And if you're a quote unquote liberal congressperson, you know, Raytheon in Massachusetts or whatever provides tons of jobs. That That is just not realistic, in my opinion, whether maybe we would want it to happen, but uh, I don't see it happening. Where would you personally say you should focus energy then if that is just like a lost cause? I think the most realistic thing to do is focus at the hyper elite level. Foreign policy is a hyper elite sphere and not that many people make it. So if you're somehow able to like really manipulate the the uppermost level of decision making and somehow get on the National Security Council or whatnot, that's far more likely to do anything than any sort of mass based movement. I just think that's the reality. If you look at, you know, the anti-Iraq war protests, what have you, um, that's just not a, a way for meaningful change. I don't know, Derek, that's pretty controversial. I mean, people want it to be another way. It's like Marla from The Wire. You want it to be one way, but it's the other way. I think we got to start admitting it's the other way and then go from yeah. there. I mean, I get people ask me, and I, I, I have this, I have a thing I do for subscribers at Substack that, um, you know, it's like a, a jobs, uh, job openings thing where we kind of curate a list of places that aren't horrible. You know, they range from actually pretty good to not terrible. Uh, and I, you know, people ask like, you know, can you ethically work in, in the establishment or an establishment organization? And I always 
say, yeah, I mean, what else are you going to do? Like, what what alternative is there? First of all, you got to work. I mean, I'm not going to judge anybody for for taking the job that they take. Um, but, you know, secondly, like the only way you're going to have any hope of changing these organizations is to get people in them uh, that believe that we need to curtail the empire and, and to, you know, to uh, start filling the echelon, the upper echelons of these organizations. Now, you know, uh, the system is self-sustaining and it's self-protecting, so it, it, it tries to weed out. Uh, anybody who's heterodox enough to question some of these things. So it's it's not going to be easy. Uh, but I don't I don't know what else uh, you do other than yeah to like you know buy cocaine and and throw up your hands and and have a party until the apocalypse. So like is it genuinely you would come from this from a perspective of re- like reformation from the inside? Do, do you think that is even realistic? Because like I, I would I would no, only assume you, both are going to fail. <laughs> yeah, I don't think either one is realistic. Yeah, yeah, they're both going to fail. Yeah. That's a better one is <laughs> one is maybe, you know, slightly more efficacious than the other. But I don't think either one is is really likely to work. Yeah, I guess like the best you could hope to be is the guy saying in the room, don't bomb that that gets ignored. Um, <laughs> like, I, I mean, that's just the realistic situation. You know, uh, I just saw someone in the chat said, oh, God, reformation from the inside. I don't think so. I'd like to ask that person, what's the, what's the correct one? Leninist revolution. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, there's no other possibility. Uh, and we kind of laugh to keep from crying, you know? Uh, well, okay, speaking of which, there is, like, a, a movement in the U.S. that deals with what they consider to be, like, patriotic socialism. So the idea of, like, perhaps ending U.S. imperialism, but at the same time maintaining the concept of U.S. nationalism. Uh, do, right. do, do you find those to be, like, diametrically opposed? Or do you think there's any way that the U.S. could be so reformed that the idea of the United States itself could remain while at the same time uh, it could effectively disarm in some way in yeah that was kind of like the angela nagel article about immigration if i recall correctly um which is like it comes from that sort of old populist tradition of economic nationalism i i i I am skeptical about whether that will actually be able to work in the reality that we exist um that will you know we'll able we'll be able to create socialism in uh one country uh to borrow a famous phrase from the past um uh, yeah i mean i'm pretty pessimistic about any actual change i don't know what you think man um i mean yeah i I, you know this is again not something that I, i spend a lot of time thinking about but i think it's um it's hard to to sustain it. It will be hard to sustain basic functions after a while. I mean, you just look demographically at at um, you know where this country is at, and if you take the position that uh, you know we should build the wall, but then have a socialist utopia inside uh, inside the wall, um, I I don't I don't think that's sustainable. I mean, you know, if you're going to shut down immigration, if you're going to uh, keep everybody out and, and do Fortress USA. I, I don't think you're going to have a paradise uh, on this side of the wall. I just don't see it. What would you say would be the best course of action from a, let's just say, pragmatic standpoint? So fully acknowledging the Vote Democrats. Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, say, say, say before the midterms or anything like that. But in the situation we have right now, you know, the neoliberals are in power and, and clearly there's a large amount of uh, saber rattling that is taking place. Um, what is the best possible pragmatic solution to come out of that then from, from like a realistic think, standpoint? I think the best we could do is just call bullshit as, as loudly and as often as possible. I mean, there's really no other solution than that. 
change the next generation's way of thinking, I guess. Yeah. I mean, again, it doesn't, uh, I mean, I said this earlier in the, the call here, but it's not, it doesn't seem like it should be that big a shift to get people to, to, to stick a question in front of, you know, what do we do? And, and, you know, instead to make their first question, should we be doing anything? Uh, and I actually reckon with that question first, but, but yeah, I don't, I'm not optimistic that we're, uh, we're going to be able to do it, but I think the only way to even get there is to just keep saying it over and over again as loudly as possible. Like I actually have oh, sorry, doesn't have to be this way. I actually have a real answer. I think there's a tendency on the left to retreat into fantasy about like violent revolution or workers' revolution, and I think that's pretty dangerous. And and I would suggest just try to take as pessimistic slash realistic look around you about how power actually operates about the success of the strategies that have been adopted in the past and to ask yourself if they truly worked. We we had Chomsky on recently and I, I didn't want to like ask him this too hard, but I'm like, so everything you said, like your entire strategy has failed and the American empire continues to exist. And he's like, you know, well, I still think mass movements and, and, you know, protests is the way to go. And I would just ask people to question that, um, to see what works and what doesn't. And then based on that, to develop novel strategies that actually change power. The only important thing is power. The rest is just nonsense and distraction. So NFTs. Yeah, yeah, NFTs. So NFTs. what I'm saying is American <laughs> Prestige has an NFT, and I wish everyone would purchase it. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I, I didn't know you were you were both so doomer-pilled, but I guess if you spend like all day it's as, not as a podcaster. Doomer. So this is, I think, so this is what I think the language we have to get. It's not doomer. It's just realistic, mm-hmm. you know, and no change is going to happen from fantasy. N- never has, never will. Um, I, I mean, I guess it's funny, like we're among friends, doomer. I, I, I use that term as well, but it's just... Where are we in 2022? Mm-hmm. How many dead from COVID? Rising inequality, continuous American imperial expansion. It suggests to me that what we've done in the past hasn't worked. So we have to really, really think about how power actually functions in this society and then go from there. Derek? Uh, no, I, I, I agree with that. I, I think... Um... You know, I, I, I would like to have a more well thought out, optimistic take about this. But really, I spend, uh, you know, 12 hours a day reading and writing about all the terrible things that are happening in the world. And I like uh, I, it's it's hard to kind of see how that that turns around without a very long, painful slog and probably um, something approaching a a, a serious societal crisis i mean something much more serious than covid something climate change related or a a pandemic that's worse than covid um you know that kind of emergency and and you know you can't sort of predict how that would uh, play out but but i i find uh the trajectory that we're on is is uh you know it's hard to see how you're how you get us off of that uh, and a couple of quick things. One, we were really excited about the Nicholas Kristof uh, gubernatorial campaign. Yeah, that's bummed. a bummer too. Yeah, that we were going to be his foreign policy advisors, and that was just a real, <laughs> real foreign bummer. Foreign policy advisors for the governor of Oregon. <laughs> JK, JK. But someone did say something in the chat I want to address too about social movements having an impact. I think that's right. Um, I think the social movements of of, of the anti-Vietnam um, movement essentially basically pushed America to fight light footprint wars, at least light footprint when it comes to you. 
U.S. lives. But if you're a socialist and a humanist um, and, and, you know, it's not just American lives that you center, I would say that, you know, the dissipation of anti-imperialist movements once we got rid of the draft isn't exactly, you know, um, uh, it is uh, in some senses a positive development, but there's a lot of significant drawbacks because essentially what it allows you to do is wage endless war and to do enormous damage to people abroad. Um, and so I just wanted to say that, like, um, I recognize that and, and it's a little bit, um, I think, uh, more complicated. Well, Danny, I just have a question. Like, say the the political campaign runs of like Bernie Sanders, even though they were unsuccessful, would you look upon one of those as something like there was a galvanized movement towards uh, perhaps a change, or did you see him just as kind of a milk toast uh, way of appeasing no, progressives no. or anything like that? I was. I was a foreign policy advisor to the Bernie campaign. Um, nice. And so uh, with one of my recommendations and, and uh, like my one of my first recommendations in one of these memos I wrote was to literally just do a power mapping of the American empire because we don't even know where power lies in this thing. It is such a behemoth uh, with a domestic and international bases that it's very difficult to even start to think about how to change that. So the first thing to do is literally to just map these power relationships, which is very difficult to do outside the government because you don't have access to all the information. But if Bernie won, and he was willing to expend some political capital, there could have been a task force that, you know, was charged with spending a year literally just mapping this thing uh, and then identifying weak points and going from there. But right now we're on the outside. So it's very, very difficult to even get a good sense of how this thing functions. But that I mean, that too, I mean, the, to have seen how thoroughly and cleanly uh, <laughs> they mobilized to destroy that campaign, to, you know, mm-hmm. at both times, I mean, both in both. Uh, both times he ran in the primary, just how swiftly, not even the full might of sort of the the American you know machine, just the Democratic Party, which is this you know gang of like think tank re- rejects and you know uh, uh, over uh, uh, you know grads consultants. Yeah. Jacob Backrack had a had a yeah. It was like it's a it's not a political party. It's like a collective. Uh, it's like a. a, a <laughs> A house for uh, uh, consultants, basically. Um, but yeah, I mean, just how how cleanly they they stuck the knife in that uh, campaign was was I mean depressing in a way. I mean, and impressive. You know, They're much to, better. To say at it, was it, impre- it was it was very impressive. They're better at, at at taking out a left insurgency than they are at taking on the Republicans for sure. <laughs> um, but it's you know it, it was it was uh, you want to talk about being doomer pilled to some extent that that contributed to it I think to, oh, for yeah. me anyway. Oh I, I yeah that that broke the global left <laughs> for for a while too. It shattered again with force the vote and then well and yeah I mean what happened with Corbyn in the UK I mean just all this stuff like how how easily the 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 sort of center or I guess nominally center left is able to to come down uh and and just wreck these left movements is uh it's discouraging yeah for sure um okay uh i i i know uh you you said that your time was limited so i'll 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 leave this to one last question from the audience um what do you think uh would be the ideal solution you see to what what is happening with russia and ukraine Short and long term. Half a million troops and tactical nukes. The only way to go. <laughs> Derek, I, whatever Derek says, I agree with. Derek, what do you think? <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, we're we're past the point of like an ideal, ideal ending to this where everybody mm-hmm. kind of uh, solves all their problems and negotiates an end and, and we're all happy with each other uh, and we move on. But realistically... 
Um, you know, anything. Uh, realistically, I think the best case scenario here is that uh, this turns out to be a, a nothing burger the way it was the last time we had this panic. Uh, the Russians send their uh, forces back to barracks and we all kind of uh, calm down. And, and hopefully, I mean, you know, here's the ideal uh, fantasy, I guess. Uh, the next time the Russians do this, because they will do it again. I mean, if, if you know, if we don't end in war here, uh, they will do another buildup of troops in this same part of the country. They'll have exercises in Belarus. They'll have exercises in Crimea. Uh, hopefully next time, either, you know, Western leaders will not treat it like we're on the verge of, of World War Three, Or if they do, we can just sort of say, you know, look, you've been wrong about this twice. Uh, let's let's not go there again. I, I mean, that's. To me, that's that's the best you can hope for at this point. Uh, gentlemen, where can everyone find your podcast and your Patreon and give you all the monies? Uh, you could just look at Patreon, American Prestige, uh, and subscribe uh, and listen to our takes. We do one free episode, which is a news roundup and an interview. And then we do bonus episodes, um, which sometimes are interviews, um, sometimes uh, are, are, you know, just friends we have. Like we've had Matt Chrisman on a bunch. Uh, and we're also doing these long-term series. We just finished up a, a seven-part series on the history of the Vietnam War. Uh, and we've got a nine-part series on the history of Afghanistan. And we're in the process of doing uh, a series on the non-aligned movement uh and so that's that's what um what we're doing and you know we're an independent source we have no institutional backing so if you want heterodox foreign policy and hot takes like ours to continue to exist we really do rely on that financial support and we appreciate every patron um yeah and also uh we've been trying to work on our our we have a, a home page we've been trying to work on it a little bit and make it look nice uh american prestige pod uh, all one word dot com uh and we're on youtube now we don't have any videos yet but uh we may at some point so uh, uh you know you can find us there as well uh total sidebar danny do you ever do foreign policy inter- uh, debates online um I, I haven't been asked. I mean, I, I come from the academic world. Like, like, who would I debate? Like, Destiny or Boss or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> These are the only streamers I know. I know Hassan. He seems like on our side, right? <laughs> well, I was just saying, you're very, you're very quick with the retorts. I think it would be, it would be interesting to to watch. But yeah, sure. Yeah, well, it, it's kind of funny because like I've dedicated my life to studying this, so I find a lot of the debates a little bit boring because it's like banal, <laughs> you know, like it, it's like a, 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 an issue that I've like thought beyond. <laughs> I don't know. That sounds like so arrogant, but you know, I devoted myself to this. I feel like I could say it. <laughs> well, awesome. Uh, thank you both so much for uh, for joining me. That was a super interesting talk. Thanks a lot, man. Happy. Thanks to come for back having anytime. Us. Talk to you uh, later. Bye. Everybody, go uh, go do that thing. You know the thing where you go and, and go and subscribe and, and follow the podcast and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, very very interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, go go listen to more. Go 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 subscribe. Go go follow them on the twitters. Go go download the podcasts. Go if you have a dollar to spare, go hit up the Patreon. All all of the good things, you know. Um, and uh, you know now I understand that everyone might be. Might be a little bit down. Uh, you might feel a little bit of little a little doomeraid, but don't worry. Uh, we'll just watch pleasant cat videos for the next six hours, and that's how the internet usually usually recharges its batteries in one way or another. You know, uh, that was depressing as fuck. Time to take some Xanax and play RPGs. <laughs> Siggy Jello eighty nine. I'm sorry to hear that.
<laughs> well, hey, I hope that helps. You know, what whatever whatever helps. Um, I mean, I I agreed with uh, Danny to an extent in that um, his statement where it's like you know I I and you know it's, he's he's not the first person to say this, but obviously uh, the idea of uh, there's a difference between you know pessimism and and realism. You know, I think it's the like first time I ever heard that. I think it was my dad who who told me that. But um, yeah, uh, the, to a certain degree, there's there is a utility and a value to to pessimism, uh, or or even to to well, more importantly, to realism. For for example, um, to to understand like understanding that's why like I don't shy away from playing the news at the sort of extreme being like usually really heavy because I think there is there's a lot of utility to to understanding the world around us and how it operates and the honesty of that, even if it is. Even if it is, uh, you know, depressing or something. I accidentally wasted my bread trying to make Lance quote my roommate, so here goes attempt number two. Uh, sorry. The KGB invented time travel so Stalin and Marx could touch tips. There you have it, everyone. Yeah, that one. That one hopefully won't be, uh, won't be clipped out of context. So you've just been listening to an episode of The Surf Times. And if you enjoy it and want to see The Surf Times, you can go to wearesurfs.com or watch the live shows at thesurfs.tv. And also everywhere social media is sold, basically thesurfs.tv, you'll find us there, twitter.com slash thesurfstv, for example. It would also help us out tremendously if you could leave a good review of this podcast if you enjoyed it, either on, I don't know, iTunes or wherever you're podcasting. Apparently it does help, and yeah, we hope to see you soon. To our gods, Xander Corvus and Peyton L. Just, we beseech thee to smite down our enemies. To our monarch, Tom Spiker. We are but your humble court jesters, here to amuse you. To our lords, Trevor R. We give thanks for this spit of land for us to eke out this meager existence. To our knights, Merid, Cheryl Alvarez, Ruby Kelly, Ellie Leslie, Alex P., Brandon, Words Greenwood, Nate, That One Guy, Hagbird Celine, Matthew Scarborough, Stellar Vision, Ariane McCarthy, Daniel Sutton, Coulter Smith, Val 9000, Jenna Tall, Quiet185, Anna Loves Riley, Omni, Riley and Anna, Poodlehawk, The Tim Caucus, Multimondi, Trevor Yanis, Lemmy101, Anthropophojack, Seren42, Catherine, Radical Maniac, Ramona Costa, Nkosin, Violent Orchard, Sophie Baby, Political Puppy, Andreas Chiringuito, Zach Christensen, Josh Mickelson, Todd Buckingham, and Todd Lajeunesse. We raise our flag in a veil, and we salute you, our friends.